This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello and welcome back to Master the MRCPCH. My name is Dr. Rian Thomas and I'm a Registrar in Clinical Genetics and the Digital Learning Education Fellow here at Great Ormond Street Hospital in London. In this episode, we'll be speaking with the wonderful Dr. Keir Shields, a consultant in general paediatrics here at Great Ormond Street Hospital. We'll be speaking to him on the topic of the limping child. Now, interestingly, this only maps to one point on the theory exam syllabus. It's under musculoskeletal and it's to know the differential diagnosis of pain on walking and limp and initial management. However, we'll cover lots of different subject areas, including oncology. So thank you so much for listening and we hope you enjoy this week's episode. Thank you so much for coming back on the podcast, Keir. Thank you very much for having me back. So the subject for today is the limping child. So what would you like people listening to get out of this podcast? Yeah, the limping child is a presentation that's got a very, very, very wide differential. And what I'd like to do is just provide a framework for thinking through your history taking and examination of a child with a limp because there are some very, very mild minor causes and some very serious causes of a limping child. And hopefully it will feed into some of the conditions that you'll see presenting in your written papers of your exams as well. Brilliant. That sounds perfect. So let's just dive straight in. So there's obviously lots of different causes for a child limping. Do you have a framework to work out what the underlying cause for for the limp is? Yes. So I guess the the first question in your decision tree is, is this a limp that is caused by a traumatic injury? And is this a limp that is non-traumatic? And then within your traumatic tree, the important thing to pick apart is, is the injury caused by a normal degree of trauma or has an unusually small movement or injury caused quite a dramatic alteration in a child's gait. So you've got normal trauma, low level trauma and non-trauma. That's the first bit. And then the next bit is to work out where the limp is coming from. And usually in the non-traumatic limps, I look at, is it the bone? Is it the joint or is it the muscle? And that's my, that is my entire sort of decision tree, really. Obviously I've got to fit other bits into it, like what age is the child and what are they predisposed to? But your basic format is, was it trauma? Was it a suspiciously low amount of trauma? Was it non-trauma? And then bone, joint, muscle. That sounds very simple and, and sensible. So shall we start with, shall we start with trauma? Yes. So I'm, I'm not going to cover sort of normal levels of trauma because I would hope that even the most commonsensical person can realize that if you fall off the monkey bars and then start limping, falling off the monkey bars and landing might have caused the limp. That's not, that's not to be questioned. But there are some pediatric diagnoses that it's important to know about where minimal trauma can cause quite a significant injury. And I'm not talking about the likes of osteogenesis imperfecta or anything like that. I'm talking about in the normally developing bone structure of children. So 
The first one is the toddler's fracture. The toddler's fracture is a long bone fracture, usually of the tibia, that's caused by a very simple twisting injury. And if you imagine just standing rooted to the spot and sort of doing the twist, as it were, or standing on one leg and kicking a football really, really firmly and twisting on that leg that you're standing on, it's those sorts of movements that suddenly the child is crying and they're limping. And you've got to remember that part of our bone density comes from the fact that we are repeatedly walking. Immobility causes osteopenia. Well, the reverse is also true, that using your legs a lot and standing a lot and running a lot increases your, your bone strength. Now, when you're a toddler, when you're only 18 months old, 12 months old, you, you haven't actually used that leg very much. You haven't given it a lot of impact through its short life. And so it's actually relatively delicate and it's quite brittle. And so simple twisting injuries can cause spiral fractures really easily. Um, the other thing is that falling on an outstretched hand is not going to cause a collie's fracture like it would in an adult, but because the ends of the wrists are really sort of plastic and spongy, you end up creating a buckling of the bone called a buckle fracture. And so you may not see any lines on an x-ray, but the end of the radius or the end of the ulna may just be slightly squashed a bit. And that's actually a form of fracture. Now it doesn't require an awful lot of treatment. Some people don't splint them at all. Some people do splint them, but frankly, it is a fracture and it's worth knowing about. And it's also worth remembering that any fracture in a child can go through a growth plate. And so fractures at the ends of bones in children are really important to, to get right. Otherwise you can end up with deformities afterwards. And the final sort of fracture I want to talk about is an avulsion fracture. And those are classically seen, not just in, in falling, but also in teenage boys who have just kicked a football hard. They straighten their leg really, really quickly. And in straightening their leg, their tibial tubercle literally rips off as the patella tendon pulls the tibial tubercle up. Now, why does that happen? Well, it happens because they've got a condition called Osgood Schlatter's disease where their bones are growing so much and their muscles and tendons aren't that their tibial tubercle is evulsing slightly from the surface of their tibia and a very sharp, swift movement can cause that to rip off. And that's a sporting injury that we often see in teenage boys playing particularly football, but also rugby if they've been, if they've been kicking the ball. And so that's very important to, to look out for. So you talked about the traumatic injuries. So we move on to think about the non-traumatic side of things. So I guess the first thing about non-traumatic limps is that they're sort of limps that come out of nowhere, but you've got to get all of the common sense, small print stuff out of the way first. So all children grow. All children grow out of their shoes. So just make sure that you examine them with their shoes off as well as their shoes on. Because if they've come to hospital because their shoes are too small, which does happen, or they've got a stone in their shoe or something, you need to sort that out first. Because you can save yourself an awful lot of bother if you just examine them in bare feet. And if they're walking fine, but they're limping with their shoes on, then they may well just need new shoes. I realize it's a silly point to make, but actually it's something that people do forget about, that children grow and they grow really, really quickly. And anybody who's a parent listening to this will know how quickly children 
churn through shoes. But the next stage is to look at problems with the bones, problems with the joints and problems with the muscle system. Great. And so shall we, shall we start with the, the bones? Yeah. So bony problems can arise for a, a variety of different reasons and at different age groups. And it's good to have a sort of an age stratification in your head of what the common causes are of limps. So things that can present at any age, but that nonetheless present in the bones would include things like rickets. Vitamin D deficiency is very, very common, much more common than we'd like to believe. And so osteopenic bones bend and it becomes very sore to be walking, particularly up the stairs. And so bone pain on exertion, particularly up hills or upstairs, or a reduction in exercise tolerance because of bone pain could be because of rickets. And other things to watch out for that can strike at any age include osteomyelitis. So have they got fevers? Have they previously had an infection somewhere else? But there are some age-specific diagnoses to look out for. So mercifully not seen now as much as it used to be, we have developmental hip dysplasia, which is usually identified on the baby check. But if it's missed, it can cause significant problems with walking in the early years. So children who are limping from the moment they start walking, sort of around 11 months, 12 months, you want to think about developmental dysplasia of the hip. A bit later, you've got Perthes disease, which is an avascular necrosis of the femoral head. That tends to hit in more early school age children, but it is something that you've got to be aware of because most people sort of link avascular necrosis of the femoral head with the elderly, but it can present spontaneously in children. You've then got in the older age group, I've already mentioned Osgood Schlatter's disease, but you've got SUFI, which is a slipped upper femoral epiphysis where the neck of the femur slides on the head of the femur and you end up with a leg length discrepancy and painful articulation of the hip joint. Sometimes these can present with referred pain, so you can get back pain or knee pain rather than hip pain. But it's worth making sure that any teenager who's presenting with a sudden onset limp gets a, a hip x-ray to make sure that they don't have a slipped up ephemeral epiphysis. The last cause of bone pain is very rare, but is important to bear in mind, and that is cancers of the bone. So cancers of the bone include tumors, obviously, but also cancers of the bone marrow. And non-traumatic limp is one of the ways in which leukemias can present. If you think about having osteomyelitis, you get pain because you've got pus building up inside an enclosed space in bone. Well, the same is true when you have massive lymph proliferation in a long bone and it causes pain because you've got rapidly dividing tissue in a tight enclosed space. And that causes compression of small blood vessels in the bone causing a little bit of ischemic pain. And also the bone itself being under tension causes pain. And when you drive your weight through that sore bone, it creates even more pain. So that's why you get that sort of pain in, in cancers. I mentioned there um, ischemic pain in bone, and that's just sort of fired a little reminder as well that sickle cell disease, um, while we're on the topic of hematology, will also cause pain in bone. Now, 
it usually presents for the first time in fingers uh, at a young age. But pain in long bones is going to be a significant presentation in age groups from toddlers all the way up to, to old children. So that's something to bear in mind. So hematology is a really important topic, oddly, in limping children with sickle cell and with leukemia. So you've got to be really, really cognizant that you don't want to miss either a structural cancer of the bone or a lymphatic or, or lymphopenic or leukemic cancer that can cause bone pain as well. And that's why this is a really important topic, because children who have spontaneously developed a limp could have an underlying hematological and oncological diagnosis. Yes, yeah, such an important topic, a really important thing to know. So we've covered the causes in bones. Shall we move on to talk about joints? Yes. So joints are, on the one hand, a lot easier to assess because usually when you've got a joint involvement, you've got a very obvious swollen deformity. And with bone problems, you don't necessarily get a lot of swelling. The pain is coming from, say, bone on bone rubbing or from the pressure that you're putting through bones. Joints usually inflame. And so causes like septic arthritis or juvenile idiopathic arthritis will usually present with a limp and painful joint somewhere. And those joints will be swollen. So you'll get a big knee or you'll get all the joints of the toes being being inflamed. So making sure that you inspect and feel for heat and warmth and get a really good idea of where the pain's coming from is important. However, joint problems can also be quite difficult to pin down as well, particularly in the hip joint, because the hip joint doesn't swell visibly like the others. And so you've got to get a good hip examination to rule out a septic arthritis of the hip. Most non-traumatic limps that you will see in your medical career will be a joint swelling in the context of a relatively minor cough and cold in a toddler or an early school age child. This is why the limping child is very often overlooked as being a serious problem because it is very, very frequently not a serious problem. And I'm talking, of course, about in this context, a reactive arthritis. So a child gets a mild viral infection and they end up with a significant problem in hip movement or something like that. Now, even if you reckon you know what's going on and you think, ah, oh, I know this is, this is definitely just a viral infection with a reactive arthritis, you've still got to make sure that you rule out a leukemia. You've got to make sure you rule out a septic arthritis because things can happen concurrently. Leukemias can present with immunosuppression. And so having a child who's got a snotty nose might not be uncommon. Children are snotty all the time. At certain ages, they pick up everything from nursery and school. And so the link between a mild viral infection and a transient synovitis may just be coincident. And so you need to make sure that the child doesn't have something serious. So don't be reassured by the fact that you think you know what's going on. The final thing to mention is that sometimes there are lots of weird and wonderful rashes that can present with bone and joint problems. And so you may have, you know, the, the target rash of Lyme disease, or you may have Henoch-Schönlein purpura, for example, which can 
then go on to, to develop into arthritis. And so looking for rashes is really important. One of the rashes that you do need to watch out for is not just HSP, but is another non-branching rash, something that's very seldom taught, but is very well sort of regarded in the literature is the link between meningococcal sepsis and bone and joint pain. A significant proportion in the 80s of percents of children with meningococcal sepsis present with limb pain. And so making sure that you don't miss the meningococcal rash is really important. That's really interesting. I had no idea about those those numbers. So working our way through your decision tree, should we finish with muscles? Yeah, so muscles can go wrong just like any other area of the, the skeletal system. And the most common way in which muscles are going to go wrong is with a, a myositis. And therefore you will have a, a limited movement in one or many muscles. And a viral myositis is certainly more common than we, we think. Remember that ALT, the liver function test, is raised in myositis, so muscles have got a, a big store of ALT. And so if you ever see a liver function test that have got a high ALT but are normal elsewhere, then you may be looking at a muscle problem rather than a bone problem. You can have skin involvement as well in a dermatomyositis, so it's well worth looking at the all the knuckles of the fingers, etc. And you also want to make sure that any limb pain is not caused by a neuromuscular condition. So a good neurological examination is key. I'm sure that you've all seen children who are age three or four regressing slightly in their motor skills because they've got Duchenne's muscular dystrophy and they've started limping and they've not been able to, to stand up properly. They have to use that Gower's sign of, of, of pushing themselves off the ground and walking up their legs. But it's also worth remembering that the muscles that control the legs do go higher up. And there are some possibly rare, but important things to, to look out for. So if you stop moving your leg or you're limping, just check for right iliac fossa tenderness or left iliac fossa tenderness, not particularly to look for signs of appendicitis. But remember that the psoas muscle can be predisposed towards abscesses. And so difficulty moving that leg or pain when moving that leg could be because of primary muscle infection. So there's a lot to look out for simply in, in muscles. Keir, we've, we've talked about some investigations as you've been going along and kind of going through what some of the causes are, but do you have a battery of investigations that you look to when you see a, a limping child? Yeah, it's important to make sure that you rule out as much as possible in one battery of tests with this because the stakes can be quite high. Now, obviously, you need to be guided by your history. If things are pointing you very much in one direction, you don't have to do all of them. But I'd make sure that you've got a full blood count and a film in order to rule out leukemia, that you've got an ESR in case of inflammatory disease, that you've got a UNE, a CRP, an LFT and a bone profile, along with the vitamin D at the same time, remembering that rickets can be presenting as bone pain, that you do a CK which will not only obviously be elevated in, in muscular dystrophies, but also in myositis as well. You need an X-ray of the 
painful joints, the hip, knee, or ankle. And obviously you need the thorough examination to guide what you're x-raying. Sometimes you may even need to examine an x-ray more than one joint if you can't quite work out whether it is, for example, a hip or a, a referred knee problem. And making sure that there is an early referral to a pediatric service. So if you're, if you're working in A&E, for example, that you get the hospital general pediatricians involved quite quickly. Many of these children can be discharged as long as bloods are followed up. So they don't necessarily need admission, but they do need cautious management. I guess the other thing is to be aware of jumping to conclusions. It's very easy to treat clinical practice like an exam, but there's a big difference between the two. So if in the rubric of an exam question, for example, a child goes around to spend the weekend with one parent and comes back with a limp, that's going to be really important and going to raise your concerns about non-accidental injury. But in the real world, you know, a child will go around to one parent's for the weekend, develop a limp. One parent will think it's nothing because the child sometimes walks a bit funny and the other parent who they're going back to is more worried. And you don't necessarily jump to the sort of conclusion that you might in an exam. If a child's had a temperature when they've been at one parent's house, they can come back with an irritable hip. That's, that's life. So don't treat life like exams and don't treat exams like life. And I guess the, the final one is about leukemia, that one of the cardinal symptoms that you get with leukemia is easy bruising. And just beware of any child who's got a long-standing history of lifelong easy bruising that's sort of been investigated but hasn't come to anything. You can't just take that lifelong history as read. If they've got a limp and they're easy bruising, just make sure that you do those investigations because you don't want to miss a cancer. Great advice there, Kia. So shall we move on to do our quickfire questions? Of course. So, are there any classic exam questions that pop up about this subject? I'm not really sure that there are classic exam questions about this subject, to be honest. I think that a limping child is going to be the initial sentence of a question that is a classic example of a question about rickets or a classic example of a question about uh, leukemia. What you're going to have to look out for in the real world is limping child and how you filter that examination. You've just got to realize that limping child is going to be the way in which other serious conditions are going to be flagged up to you in an exam. But there may be a classic leukemia question, but there's probably not a classic limping child question. Really thinking about those red flags, I guess. Absolutely. And the next question, are there any useful resources that you'd recommend people having a look at? So I'm not sure there is a single particular resource that is helpful on this. Every hospital is going to have its own guideline with its own particular nuances. There will be some hospitals that are very worried about you even taking a blood culture if you're not starting them on IV antibiotics, for example. And you've got to be guided a little bit by your own hospital's management. There's not even a beautiful nice, thick, nice guideline with a, a lovely flowchart in it. There is a page, if you just Google limping child nice or something like that, that will give you a sort of nice overview of how to structure an assessment. But it's not a nice guideline in the classical sense. 
So you've really got to find your own route through these troubled waters. And that's why I came up with my little decision tree. That's really helpful. Thanks for, for signposting to that, Keir. And just to finish off, what are your three takeaway learning points? And um, My three takeaway learning points are, it's probably nothing. Treat it seriously because it could be cancer and try to think your way through a decision tree. Those are the key, key points, really, relatively, relatively straightforward. I guess the, the other way that I could phrase it is that low impact injuries can still cause fractures. So in traumatic limp, still investigate the, the low impact traumas as if they were high impact traumas in, in the right case. Make sure when you're examining the child that you look at all of the joints, not just the one that they think is affected and take it seriously. It might be nothing, but treat trauma and lack of trauma equally seriously. Fantastic advice. Thank you so much for going over that care. It was beautifully structured and I'm sure our listeners will find it really helpful. So thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. No problem. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Master the MRCPCH. If you want to get in touch, you can do so via social media. You can find Gosh Learning Academy on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We also have lots of exciting new podcasts coming soon. To find out more, search Gosh Pods wherever you get your podcasts. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you again next time. Thank you. Bye.